Well, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. We are in John 15 this morning, and we're going to be exploring verses 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. And as I mentioned at the beginning of our service this morning, today is Reformation Sunday. There's a lot to be thankful for and a lot to celebrate. One of the things we celebrate and are thankful for most of all about the Reformation is that it was fundamentally about going back to the Bible, about rediscovering the gospel, about taking joy and taking delight in the gospel and in what God has revealed himself to be in the Bible. It was about the church going back and submitting herself to the authority of the scripture and developing a robust Christianity that is flavored by God's word to us. The Reformation was something that was a protest. It was a protest against the authoritative pronouncements of the Pope and church tradition that were at best unsupported by Scripture and at worst completely contradictory to it. And so what we do is we celebrate what God did in and through the Reformation for many reasons. Most of all that he recovered the Bible and recovered the gospel in it. In the early 16th century, when all this was going on, the gospel had been almost completely undermined and rejected by the Roman church. The laity, people in the church, like you, were forbidden from reading Scripture. You had no access to it. And so the church practiced mind control, and they hijacked the church from its biblical roots. So the Reformation was not just this conflict over a few inconsequential theological details for ivory tower theologians. It got right to the very core of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to belong to Christ, what it means to have any hope in this life and the next. And so we're thankful for this, that the gospel was recovered, that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we stand forgiven, we stand declared righteous, and our whole life becomes one that is committed to the glory of God alone. All of that stuff that happened during the Reformation has heaps and heaps to do with this passage that we're going to explore this morning. Because the reformers, when they proposed going back to Scripture and rediscovering the gospel, they were met with intense persecution. They were met with hatred, not just from the world around them, but they were met with hatred from those within the church when they espoused that Scripture is our only authority, that God alone is the Lord of the conscious, and that faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone is the basis upon which we can be reconciled to God they experienced persecution for that. They experienced the hatred of the world. And so in our own day, the Bible and the gospel are hated by those both within the church and outside of it. So if we as individuals and we as a church are to have a distinctively Christian, biblical, gospel-filled life and view of things and of ourselves, we should not be surprised if we're met with some pushback. And that is what's going on in this passage. That's what Jesus is warning the disciples about. And that's what we come before him now to read in John 15, beginning in verse 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. Let's read God's word together now, beginning in verse 18. Jesus says this, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that was written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Amen. This is God's word to us this morning. The Christianity of the 16th century, much like a good bit of Christianity today, says that our ability to stand before God was based at least in part on something that we do, and upon the things that we avoid. Christianity was about doing good things and, avoid, and avoiding bad things. And it was strange because you would think that in a church that taught that, that the moral compass of the people would be rather heightened, that there would be an exceptional sense of morality that would come out of a church that would teach such a message. But that was far from the case. And it's far from the case even in our own day. You look at a church in the 1500s, that had amassed great wealth, but did so in exceptionally corrupt ways. One of the most corrupt ways in which that happened was by the church selling indulgences. The people in the church would have to come and they would pay a fee to the church so that the priest would absolve them of their sin and so that they could have any hope of eventually getting out of purgatory one day. The priests and the clergy were not subject to any of the secular laws. So when they broke laws, they never suffered the consequences of it. And they were so corrupt that the priests and the nuns had actually turned their monasteries and convents, in many cases, into brothels. And so it was a wildly ungodly time in the life of the church. And all of this was happening in the life of a church that taught that at least to some extent your standing before God was based upon your morality. And so Martin Luther begins to read his Bible, this German monk, Roman Catholic monk, and he comes to read the Bible and he comes to a crisis in his life because he came to discover that he was a colossal sinner, that he was someone who was without hope, apart from Jesus Christ, apart from standing upon his grace and upon his work for us in the gospel alone. He came to discover that he could not save himself by simply doing good things and avoiding bad things. He couldn't reach the end of his life and say, well, I was a good person. The good outweighed the bad in my life. He couldn't look at his life and say, I never went to the brothel. I never cheated anybody out of any money. I never committed any kind of major crime. He realized that he could not stand upon that alone before Jesus Christ. And so he looked at his life and he discovered something that was true, not only of him, but is true of you and me as well. And he discovered that his heart was crooked. 
that his heart was sinful, that it was bent away from God, and that he justly deserved his condemnation. But he also discovered that his good works, never in a million lifetimes, could make him righteous in God's sight. And so he reads Scripture. He plums the depths of it. And he came to discover that salvation is not fundamentally about something that you do, but it is fundamentally about something that was done for you. It's about what Christ has already done and about what He accomplishes for us in the Gospel. And so He struck a nerve with the Roman Catholic Church. When He posted those theses, He struck a nerve with them and He came under persecution. Four years after Luther nailed his 95 theses to the wall at that church in Wittenberg, Germany, the church tried him for heresy. They made him stand before the Inquisition And they laid out all of Luther's books, all of Luther's writings, and he was asked if those writings were his. And he said yes, in fact, they were his. And so the powers that be commanded him to recant everything that he had written. And so he asked for a day to sleep on it. Because there was a lot at stake there for Luther. And those days when you got fired, I mean, you got fired, literally. He, He... could recant and he could be put at peace with the church, but he would violate his conscience, which had become bound to Scripture. So that was the safe move, but it would be a violation of his conscience. But then he could stand firm. And it would not only mean that he would lose his job, and it would not only mean that he would be excommunicated from the church and lose many friends and colleagues in the mix, but it meant that his very own life was at stake. That he could literally be fired. And so he asked for a day to think about it. And he struggles all night with what to do. But the next day, he comes and he stands before the church authorities. And this is what he said to them. He said, Unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures or with an open, clear, and distinct grounds and reasoning, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God, then I cannot and will not recant because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. I can't even begin to imagine the fear and the uncertainty that Luther must have experienced upon saying those words. I mean, he would have been able to feel that down to the level of his bone marrow because he did lose his job. He did lose his friends. He was excommunicated from the church and he did have to run and go hide in an upstairs attic for several weeks, for several months because the authorities were out to kill him for his views. It seemed like Luther had an acute sense of what Jesus was talking about here in John chapter 15. I can't help but think at some point during that night when he was contemplating how he was going to respond to the authorities that this passage did not in some sense come to mind with him because he knew what he was about to face. Because no doubt a person whose life takes on the aroma of Christ, whose life is conformed to Christ and to his gospel, And the gospel and the word of God affect how he lives and thinks and breathes and speaks. A person like that is bound 
to be hated by a world that hates Christ. I've spoken a fair bit about the fact that we're living in a changing culture. We're living in a culture that is moving away from anything distinctively or even superficially Christian about it. And the sentiment of the world in which we live is not just one of indifference, but it's becoming one of open, rabid hostility. And so when your life takes on the flavor of Christ, people who have no interest in him, people who hate him, are going to respond with a gag reflex. They're going to hate it. And so they're going to seek to marginalize Christians and Christianity. They're going to think the fact that Christians derive our authority on the basis of a book that was written 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago by a bunch of backwoods Middle Easterners who knew nothing of what life was going to look like in America in the 21st century. And so they push us off to the fringe as being hopelessly naive and primitive. But because we believe in the Bible and we take Jesus for his word, we read things like John 14 and we believe it. Believe what Jesus said when he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. That's a wildly narrow and exclusive thing to say. And so Christianity comes off to the world as being cold, as being intolerant, as being narrow-minded, which are just about the most evil of all sins that you can commit today. And furthermore, we believe that because Christ and his word are the grounds for our lives, there are certain beliefs and there are certain lifestyles that are generally accepted by our world and by our culture that we cannot embrace, that we cannot affirm. And so Christianity is perceived to be downright backwards. It's perceived to be oppressive and unjust in many of our views, and we hinder society's progress. That's how it's viewed. But a lot of people... Most of the people probably that you and I are going to interact with on a day-to-day basis, people even in the church, maybe even some of you here right now, will view Christianity as just not being particularly relevant for our lives. It's something that had its day and it's gone. And so perhaps you and others may go to church, you may even identify yourself as being a Christian because that's just what you do, but you're pretty indifferent to the whole thing. But I want to suggest to you this. I want to suggest to you that unresponsiveness to Christ, even if it's passive, even if it appears somewhat innocuous, unresponsiveness to Christ and to his gospel is just another form of hatred. It's it's another form of hatred towards Jesus Christ. Because if you think about what it would look like to be indifferent to your husband or to your wife or to your children or to the important people in your life, What that is, is a failure to love them. It's a failure to embrace them, to have any affection for them. It's a a failure to actually care for them at the deepest level of their beings. It's a soft form of hatred. It's called passive indifference. And I fear that many of us who profess to be followers of Christ, who belong to Jesus Christ, rarely, if ever, feel the pinch of this type of thing coming from the world around us. That that we don't feel the pinch of a culture that at least subconsciously and softly hates Christ and hates everything that Christianity is all about. So I have to ask myself, why is that the case? Why is it the case that Jesus is talking about hatred of the world and in many respects I feel like 
the world accepts me in many respects. And maybe you feel that as well. So many of us claim to be followers of Christ, but we don't experience the kind of persecution that Jesus seems to be saying that we're going to experience if we seem to really be following him. This is a remarkable passage. It's a challenging passage because Jesus is really giving us one side of at least a two or three or four sided issue here. Because on the one thing, on the one hand, there's something wrong with our Christianity if it just doesn't offend anybody. If, if the way in which we live our lives, if what we believe, and if we're faithful to, to bring that to people, does not offend anybody at all, that's problematic. Because if Jesus has not played into how you handle things ethically at your work, something is wrong. Something's wrong if you find yourself regularly caving in, capitulating to what everybody else is doing, even if it compromises your profession to be a follower of Christ. So if you actually have some kind of meaningful intersection with the world, meaningful relationship with people that goes beyond shop talk, that goes beyond talk of new sports and weather and that type of thing, and you have never or lately experienced any pushback at all because of that, you have to ask yourself if people can really smell the aroma of Christ on you. And I have to ask myself that question as well. Because Christ is going to smell like sulfur to people who hate him. To people who have absolutely no interest in him. Whether that is actively rebellious or passively indifferent. And the smell of Christ is going to be sweet and refreshing to those who love him. A living vibrant, robust type of Christianity is going to offend people and it's going to bring out their inward hatred of Jesus Christ. But that's only part of the story. The other part of the story is that we're called to engage the world. We're actually called to be in relationship with those who do not know him, who, who don't profess Christ, who are actual haters of Christ. We're not called to be of the world. We're not called to capitulate our living and thinking to the world in order to engage it, but we are called to be in the world. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at John chapter 17, and we're going to discover that Jesus prays to the Father, and he prays that we would not be taken out of the world. He, he prays that we would not be taken out of the world because he specifically sent us into it. And the reason why he has sent us into it is so that we might display the beauty and the glory and the grace of Christ in what we say and in what we do. Jesus was in the world. His disciples were in the world. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He went to dinner with tax collectors. He befriended prostitutes and Samaritans people of a different race, people who had a false, undeveloped religion. And so we see this tension in in Scripture. We see it in what Paul writes as well when he says in 1 Corinthians that he has become all things to all people in order that he might win some. And yet at the same time, he calls us to be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're called to be in the world. We're called to go into the world. It's ungodly to go inward, to extract ourselves from the world, to detach ourselves from relationship with with other people, from failing to live in close exposure with those who live and believe in ways that are clearly unchristian and that, that are different from the gospel. 
Jesus wants us to befriend those who don't believe. He wants us to seek to understand the world as they see it. He wants us to live out our identity in Christ in relationship with them and to impart the grace and the truth of the gospel to them. But at the same time, he calls his people to be distinct, to reflect him. And what we're reflecting is the fact that he is holy and that he is beautiful and that he is not of the world. Christians are not to be of the world. Perhaps the most damaging aspect of our individual and corporate witness to an unbelieving world is our worldliness. It's the fact that there's very often little to distinguish the way we live and how we believe and how we speak from what everybody else is doing. And so many of us build our lives, even though we profess Christ, we build our lives on laying hold of the same pleasures, of acquiring the same possessions, of receiving the same respect, of amassing the same power as everybody else in the world. And I'm not just talking about other people. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about First Pres Biloxi. This is a problem in my life. It's a problem in your life as well. Because all of us, all of us here, there's not one person here this morning who doesn't have some form of an addiction to worldly pleasures and worldly pursuits. And not one of us has been immune to justifying our actions as a legitimate expression of our faith in Christ. And so we explore this passage of Scripture and we explore this reality of our life, of our own worldliness, and we can't stop and think, wow, this would be really good for someone else to hear because this is something that we need to hear, we need to latch on to. But the reality is this. When the Spirit begins to work in your life, when He begins to transform you and to, to enable you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you are no longer conformed to, the, to this world, what he does is he brings about conviction of those things. He brings about conviction in your soul of your love and your affection for this world and the things of the world. And he gives you an increasing appetite for him, a distaste for worldliness. And he enables your life to become less and less tasteful to people who either actively or passively hate Christ. So how do we view ourselves in light of this? I want to just give you a couple of ways, a couple of practical hooks and ways of thinking about yourself, ways of understanding God and understanding Christ in this whole situation as we figure out how to be in the world but not of it. How we figure out how to engage a world that hates us and that hates Christ. How we can be well thought of by outsiders as we are commanded to be but at the same time hated by those who do not love or know Christ. So here's the first thing that you need to see and that I want you to take home with you today as you leave and consider it throughout the course of this week. The first thing that you and I need to see about ourselves and about our lives is that we are missionaries. Christians are missionaries. We are Christ's ambassadors. That's true of all of us. There's a special call for those who have been set apart to serve in domestic and foreign missions, there's no doubt there. They can have the capital M in front of their missionary life, but all of us are missionaries. You're either a missionary 
or you are part of the mission field. You're either people who have received the gospel, who believe it, and are called to proclaim it to a dying world, or were those who have yet to receive the gospel and need it proclaimed to us in such a way that we might repent of our sins and believe in him for the very first time. So that's one way of seeing yourself. Scott McDowell and Blake Henderson and I talk about this issue a lot. We talk about this issue because as Scott and Blake consider planting their churches, and I consider what this church is going to be looking like in five years, ten years, twenty years down the road, we're having to think about how we are going to adapt our churches to a changing culture and to unbelieving contexts while at the same time keeping intact the gospel and what Christianity is all about and continuing to exalt Christ and make him look beautiful. And that's the challenge for every individual Christian. We have the same challenge in our own life, how we are going to live distinctively flavorful Christian lives in a world that hates us. How are we going to go about befriending people who do not believe? What is our strategy? What is your plan about that? How are we going to be intentional about loving our neighbors and imparting the truth of grace of the gospel to them, those people who God has so providentially and graciously set in our paths? I'm not talking about treating people like projects. That's inauthentic and fake, and everybody can see right through it. But it's about building a real relationship a real friendship with someone who does not know Jesus Christ and developing that friendship with them? What if we started taking interest in people and in what they're interested in who did not know Christ? Genuinely taking an interest in them. That would be unusual. Christians don't always do a very good job about that. Because Christianity is really, in so many ways, about loving our neighbor. It's about taking interest in their lives. It's about seeking to understand the way that they see things and view things and moving into their world. But we don't let them pull us down. We don't let them pull us down. We don't become one of them. And it means that you stand firm in God's promises to you and his precepts to you and who Jesus is and what he's called us to be and who he says that we are. We don't compromise what we believe when we come under attack, or how we live when we come under attack. We, we take that as an opportunity to impart Jesus Christ to them, to impart the truth and the grace of the gospel to them. And their hearts may be softened. We may see that happen. There was a time in my life when my heart was hardened towards Christ. I was a hater of Christ, had no interest in Him, wanted to do my own thing. And someone had the boldness to come to me and bring this message of the gospel, of grace to me, when I had no interest in it. And the Holy Spirit came and softened my heart and set me free from my imprisonment to worship of my own self and enabled me to see my need for Him. And His irresistible grace drew me to Himself. Some people's hearts might be softened. Don't lack trust in the fact that Jesus has his people out there. That Jesus has his people out there and that he has come to save them. And he's come to use his people as missionaries to a dying world. But it's also true that when Jesus and his disciples made friends with people in the world who hated him, 
that they were killed for it. I mean, they, they lost ultimately for it. Not their souls, but their bodies. They were murdered for this. You're probably not going to get killed in America for bringing the gospel to people. At least not today. But you may lose your status. You may lose your reputation. You may lose some business. You may lose acceptance by people. But when I think about that as being a legitimate reality in the course of our lives, I think of the words of the great missionary Jim Elliott, the missionary to the Akua Indians in Ecuador, who was murdered by them. And he said that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, when you give up your life for the good, for the salvation of your neighbor, and for the glory of Christ, you may lose your life. You may lose the things that are important to you in life. You may incur the wrath and the hatred of the world, but you will have the assurance and the joy and the peace that comes from knowing that Christ was made to appear glorious through your life. That Christ was made to be put on full display to a dying world. And that you didn't gain the whole world and lose your soul in the midst of it. That's a sense of peace that Jesus Christ gives to you, an assurance. So Christians, we need to navigate the fact that we are missionaries in this world. That we live in it even though we are not of it. Here's the second the last thing I want us to see before we go this morning. We not only need to see ourselves as missionaries but we need to see ourselves as sojourners. We need to see ourselves in some respects as, as being a man or a woman without a country. We, we need to see ourselves as not being ultimately at home in this world. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are no longer strangers and aliens to God and the reason why is because of what he has done for us in the gospel. He's broken down that wall of hostility and he's established peace. He's reconciled us to God and he has made us citizens of heaven, adopted as his children. We belong to him. We're no longer purely just citizens of this world. We're sojourners here. We're pilgrims here. And so we start to understand that we make our, our, uh, make our home in the midst of people with a fundamentally different worldview. Different customs, different ways of speaking and living and thinking and believing than us. We start to see ourselves in many respects as being an immigrant to a foreign country, being an immigrant to a new country. It's one of the hardest things I can even imagine a person having to live through, going to a completely foreign land that is not your home and learning how to navigate that and function in it and assimilate into a world that misunderstands and fails to accept them. They have to learn to live like that. They have to learn to live in their new land, but they continue to hold on to their language. They continue to hold on to their culture. And that's true of every single immigrant, no matter where they go, no matter where, who they are or where they're from. And we need to discover and rediscover 
And consider the fact that we have found ourselves living in a foreign land. We make ourselves at home in a land that isn't our home. We engage it. We try to figure it out. We learn how to function in it. We learn how to engage it. We learn how to point people to Jesus Christ. But we remember ultimately who we are. That our home is in heaven. That we speak a heavenly language. That we have heavenly customs. We have a heavenly creed. And we're in a foreign land full of people who do not understand us. And very often, people who are misunderstood are most hated. They're either hated actively or they're hated passively, but they are misunderstood and they are hated. If, uh, if any one of us here, as an American, were to go and to immigrate to a foreign land, even if it's Canada, we're never going to be able to get the flavor of our Americanism off of us. The way we speak, the way we look, the way we live, the way we do life. That's what is going to be the case. And if you're a Christian, you have the flavor of Christ on you. It's distasteful to those who do not understand him and do not know him. We engage our culture, but we don't reject our home and we'll be hated for it. Because a Christian in a world that hates Christ and hates Christianity sometimes needs to stand before those who hate us and say, here I stand, I can do no other. That's all we can say. We just trust God to work out the details. We remain true to who Jesus is and who he says that we are amongst the people who have no love, no respect, no affection for Christ at all. That means we see ourselves as missionaries. We seek to love our neighbors and we seek to understand them even though they might hate us for it and try to do us in at the end of the day. Jesus says here that they hated him without a cause. And friends, if that's the case for him, it's going to be the case for his followers as well. If your life tastes and smells like Christ, they're going to hate us without a cause as well. But as the things of the world burrow into you, you have to remember that they burrowed into Jesus Christ first. He was hated by this world in order that he might save some, in order that we might have all of the benefits of his redemption. And that was his joy. That was the joy that he came for. And so, as those things burrow into us, don't be surprised if joy flows back to you from heaven and fills up all the voids in your life that you lose by experiencing and incurring the hatred and wrath of the world, that you might actually receive something more joyful and more beautiful and more deeply satisfying than any worldly pleasure or any worldly acceptance could ever provide for you. Let's think about that now as we come before him in prayer. O Lord, you are majestic. Your words to us are hard to hear. They're not what we want to hear. We don't want to hear that we're going to be hated by the world if our life is to reflect you. All of us want acceptance. All of us want pleasure. All of us want a sense of belonging. Lord, I pray that in each one of our souls we would see that we already have that place of belonging, that we belong to you, that we have your grace set upon us, that you are a God who takes great delight in your people. 
You've clothed us in righteousness. You've granted us forgiveness. You've adopted us as children. And so may that confidence in who you already say that we are and what you've already done for us enable us to live bold, distinct Christian lives amongst friends, amongst colleagues, amongst neighbors, amongst family members who want to have nothing to do with you. Come in our lives and display yourself for your glory, especially that some might come to know you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.